If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, Revelation 11. We're actually backing up uh, a chapter uh, tonight. We looked at chapter 12 and 13 last week. Uh, talked about some of the characters that have been introduced or, or, or were introduced um, into this um, Revelation story. Um, and I want to back up and just kind of kind of uh, pick up on the two witnesses. Um, I, as I read through this and as I look at it, um, y'all can probably read this and get it, get everything out of it that I'm going to say to you. It's, it's pretty it's pretty self-explanatory, pretty plain. But um, let's just let's look at it, and we'll look through verse 14. Um, and then I'll just I'll make a few comments, and then I know Kurt's got some new songs to work on tonight, some really hard songs, from what I can understand. So we'll see if we can't give him a little bit of time to to get a little extra, a few extra minutes in. Uh, chapter 11, Revelation. I'm going to be reading from New American Standard. Um, you don't ever know what I'm going to pull out. So, um, so anyway, some of yours may not. Uh, be exactly the same wording, but it, it's we'll get the point across. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Don't measure it. For it's been given to the nations, and they will trade it underfoot they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. It's almost as if you're looking at all this stuff. And have you ever, you ever just kind of looked around and you were looking at something and something's been there the whole time. But all of a sudden you just realize that it's there. I think that's kind of what John gets right here in this matter of. Of, of what's going through. All of this stuff's in his head. All of it's going round and round and round. And all of a sudden, and I will grant um, to, uh, to my two witnesses, and it's like, oh, okay, I, I, th- those guys. Uh, they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain won't fall during the days of their prophesying. They will have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, uh, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and the tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice. Remember those earth dwellers we talked about? When you see that, those who dwell on the earth, those are the unbelievers, okay? The earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth. Every time you see that, just know he's not talking about the believers. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. They will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. 
And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into the heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Um, if you're making notes, and just kind of keep up with it, from, from chapter 10 to chapter 14, there is a what's called a parenthetical section. Um, if, if you try to read Revelation through and try to keep it in sequence, sometimes it will kind of get you confused because you think this is next, this is next, this is next. All of these things are going on, and yet there is this snapshot that, um, that, that God wants us to get of some of the little extras that are going on. We might say things that are going on, on the side or things that are going to help develop the plot. And so chapter 14, uh, ch- uh, chapters 10 through chapter 14 are one of those. They just they kind of fill in the blanks. They, they really a, a preview of things to come, okay? Uh, now, in like we said in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, we identified the, the key characters in, um, uh, in, in this section or, or, or during the Revelation period. You remember we talked about uh, uh, Israel and we talked about Christ and we talked about the remnant and the beast and the false prophet um, and, and all of those characters that, that really make up this whole drama that we're looking at. But uh, right here, um, um, God wants us to... To, to know and understand, because I think it's over in the book of Acts, where Paul says that God is never without a witness. So, so you look at this, and you begin to think, okay, so all this chaos is going on. What's God doing? Is God just sitting back and, and, and allowing all this to happen? Well, yeah. Uh, matter of fact, it is, is decreed by him that that be done. But he still has his witnesses. We'll see in the next chapter or so an angel that's flying through the air, and the Bible says, having the everlasting gospel. So even during the midst of the tribulation period, there will be some, um, some activity going on other than just the convulsions that are coming from the earth. So let me just, I'm going to kind of, kind of stick with this, and I just want to make some comments as we go down through here. If you'll notice here, up until this point, John has pretty much been a bystander. Okay, at this point, he is called into the prophecy. He's called to become a participator in this specific part of the scripture. And the Bible says that a, a rod like a staff, or really some of your translations say a reed. A reed is a long stick uh, that can be laid out to measure. I think of it in terms like a yardstick, except it was probably, probably longer. They, they would use those. They would have certain measurements, and they would lay them out. And so one of the things that God has asked John to do to participate in this part of the prophecy is to measure the temple, okay? So he's called to participate. Um, now, notice what his instructions are. Verse 1, he, he, he has this read, and he is called to measure the temple the altar, and those who worship in it. Basically, there, there are three things here 
And, and when you begin to see this measuring out, especially as it deals with um, a lot of passages in Scripture, it signifies ownership, okay? So, so what God is doing is He's laying out what is His, what He is laying claim to. He's laying claim to the, the temple. And really, this would be the inner part of the temple. Now, you know, when, um, when the temple was built... Uh, it, it wasn't just one big building. There were, there were courts and there were, uh, there, there were uh, rooms that were built on these sorts of things. But it basically had three main compartments, if you look at it. There was, there was the court, and then there was the, the temple structure itself, which had two compartments. One was known as the holy place. And the other was known as the most holy place, okay? So the holy place had the table of showbread, it had the Manoah, um, and it had the, the altar of incense, okay? Those were the three things that were there. And then there was a curtain that history tells us was about the size of a man's hand. It's that same curtain that was torn, you remember, on the day that Jesus uh, was crucified, when, when he shouted, it is finished, that curtain tore. That's, that's what we're talking about here. And what it did was it exposed the most holy place, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was that chest that was overlaid in gold and had a gold uh, top on it. On the inside of that was a jar of manna, uh, Moses, uh, Aaron's rod that budded, and a, the copy of the Ten Commandments. Um, <laughs> And so it's very sacred, but, but in, for all practical purposes, uh, if you can picture this, it was a, um, a sign or a picture of where God's throne was on the earth, okay? Um, it, it, so when, when, let's just say the tabernacle was built before the, the, the permanent structure of the temple was built, they carried that thing, they folded it up, they carried it with them when they were traveling from Egypt to the promised land. And you remember the cloud? The, that would come and re, would reside. It would reside over that spot, which um, which really everybody could see it. They didn't know what was going on inside, but um, it, it was when that cloud hung over this tabernacle. They knew God was in residence. One time a year, the high priest would go in there. He would open that curtain. He would rush in there, and he would literally go in in a, in a sense before God. Okay, so so that was the physical. Uh, I can, you can put your hands on, you can see with your eyes evidence uh, that, that God was among his people, okay? So uh, you can imagine, I, I've often thought about this, I, I, can you imagine the day that people were standing around the temple and they were standing out in the courtyard park when that curtain was torn and man was actually able to see into what only the high priest was able to see into for thousands of years. The, the, the way, basically the meaning was, is the way to God had been opened for, for, for all men, okay? So, so he, he is to measure this. He's to measure the, the, the inner court. He's to measure the temple, uh, the, the inner court, the altar, and the people. So God is, is claiming ownership to some area of this temple here, okay? He says, here's what he says, here's what you are to exclude, though. Don't measure um, the, 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 the temple. Don't measure the outside of the temple. Uh, don't measure it. It has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months, three and a half years, okay? Um, 
Now, it's very clear here that this is a literal temple. So I'm going to talk about the temple just a little bit tonight because I think it's important for us to understand end-time events that are going to usher in the second coming of the Lord. All of this has to do with God setting up His return, okay? Now, is there a temple today? No. Will there be a temple during the tribulation? Yes, at some point. Okay, now, now I haven't really figured out if it's going to be right before the tribulation begins or if it's in the midst of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. My opinion is, is that just, just from reading and, and over the years to think that it's probably going to be during that first three and a half year period. Uh, because of a treaty that Antichrist is going to make with the Jews, okay? So let's talk about that just for a minute. It's very clear that this is a literal temple. Now, if you'll notice, he also says, underfoot the holy city. So it's Jerusalem is the holy city. So this temple is going to be in Jerusalem, okay, where it's always been, not going to be somewhere else. So, So that gives us a clue that there's going to be a literal temple in the city of Jerusalem, In the last days. Now, there is a heavenly temple. Uh, Let's just let's just just hang with me for a minute, because I know it'll get squirrely at this point. Now, you remember when Moses went on the mount to receive the instructions from God about the building of this tabernacle, and he said to Moses, "Build according to pattern of what you saw." When you were on the holy mountain, okay? So God gave uh, Moses a vision of the heavenly temple, all right? Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? I don't know, but whatever it is, the way that Moses built that tabernacle, the way the temple was built was symbolical of a reality that was in heaven, okay? Y'all with me? Okay. So it's clear that there is a temple. Uh, there's a heavenly temple. Moses saw it. By the way, who, who is the temple of God? We are. There's not a temple over in Jerusalem, but the Bible says you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are God's temple. Um, there is no temple now. Now, any of you ever been to Israel? Just you and I? Okay. Um, I don't... I, I, if you ever get a chance to go, go. The Bible becomes extremely real when you, when you see and you, 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 you hear the Scripture and then you see what it's talking about. But, but how many of you have seen pictures of Israel, especially from way off? You ever seen, a, seen it? And all of a sudden, what is the most dominant thing you can see in that picture? There's this gold dome that's sitting right on top of the Temple Mount. There are, there are two structures, well, basically three structures on the Temple Mount right now. One is called the Alaska, A-S-K-A, Alaska Mosque. And it is where the Muslims pray every day. There is what's called the Dome of the Rock. That's that big um, gold top structure that you see when you see pictures of Jerusalem when you're looking, when you're looking at it from a panoramic view. Uh, it, it, it's really called a shrine and under that, the reason they call it the Dome of the Rock is inside that dome, inside that shrine, there is a great big rock, okay? Um, now, you have to understand 
that the Jews call Abraham their father. But the Muslims do too. Okay? So, so something gets off during this time of, of Abraham. And what get, gets off is Isaac and Ishmael. Okay? So if you were to read the Quran, you would begin to see that the story of Abraham taking his son to sacrifice him on this rock, and, and they believe that's where it was, on this rock where the shrine is. But the story is told of how Abraham took his son Ishmael and laid him out to be sacrificed, okay? So you see, you see why that, that rock and that, that Temple Mount is so important even to the, even to the Muslims. Since 1967, no one who is Christian is allowed to worship on the mountain. Uh, there, there's an old Presbyterian preacher by the name of Ray Stedman. Have you, ever, have you ever read him, Paul? Ray Stedman, very, very solid Bible teacher. Ray Stedman went once with his guide and pulled his Bible out on the Temple Mount and, and was reading it, and they were going to pray, and, and the Muslims stopped him. They just walked over there and just told them, you know, you can't do that. Uh, where did the, you know where, the, where the, the Jews pray now? At the Western Wall. The Western Wall, and you've heard of the Western Wall. The Western Wall, you, you'll see these, you'll see these um, Orthodox Jewish men, and there will be one that will be get right up in the corner, and, and they pray like this. And the reason for that is, is that their prayers, it's symbolic of their prayers being totally coming from body, soul, spirit, mind, everything. They're active in their praying. Um, I think Lee rolled up a little piece of paper and stuck some prayers in there when we were there. The women pray over here. The men pray over here. But that's the only place that they can pray because that's the original wall. That's as close as they can get to where the Holy of Holies was, okay? So um, no one is allowed but Muslims to worship on that mountain. Now, what most people don't know is that the Jews recaptured the city of Jerusalem in what was known as the Six-Day War. It was the most miraculous thing you've ever read, read about. You, you, you want to read about how God intervenes in, in a battle? Read about the Six-Day War. Um, but in, in, in the midst of that, they, they took possession of everything. Now, I don't understand why. Um, but part of the treaty that they made was that they allowed the Muslims to have complete control of the temple area. And I'm going to tell you what, Lee and, I, Lee and I got lost. And so we were just scrambling around trying to find our group through the Jewish market and all. Well, we found ourselves going up onto the temple mount part. It was during the time of prayer, and, and I, we weren't threatened with a gun. But I'm going to tell you what, we, we weren't allowed to get so close. I mean, it was like these guys were just, get away, get away, get away, get away. Turn around, go the other way. You're not, you know, so, so they, won't let you, they won't let you on there at all. Um, and and that's, how, that's how serious they are about this Temple Mount area. Now, because of that, the, the Temple Mount is the third most holy site for Muslims. There is Mecca, which is the first one, Medina, the second one, and then, and then Jerusalem is the third. By the way, every um, Christian, non-Christian, everything that's associated with 
with uh, the Jewish and Muslim religion, whether it be Catholicism, whether it be Protestantism, whether, whatever it is, almost every religion in the world lays claim to Jerusalem somehow. Okay? So it's kind of interesting to see all of that. The, Jerusalem um, operates on three different calendars. <laughs> so, so just trying to keep up with all that's crazy enough, you know. Um, but... Um, it, it, is, it is one of their most holy places. So the Jews have been without a temple for about 1,900 years. In the year 70 A.D., Titus surrounded the city, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. So for, for 1,900 years, really, a little bit more, um, there's not been a temple, okay? Um, one of the most interesting things that happened when Lee and I were there is we went into the temple museum, and they had all the replicas of, of Herod's temple, and, and they had um, replicas of the priestly robes and all this kind of stuff. And, and so someone asked about the Ark of the Covenant. And this old Jewish lady, I'm going to tell you, you could just tell, she just, she just was, and she was talking about all this stuff. Windows were open. It was in in the springtime there, and it was it was it was you know fairly fairly pleasant outside. And so, someone from our group asked the question, "Where is the Ark of the Covenant?" And she pointed out the window, and it just so happened that she was pointing to the Temple Mount. There, are lots of people believe that it's that when Titus came, that the priest carried it and buried it underground somewhere. And it's remained there. And then the next question was this. Why don't you go get it? And here's what she said. We don't need it right now. We don't have a temple. So there's not a temple there, okay? There, there are, there's another little shrine off to the side uh, that, that's pretty insignificant at all. But the Bible teaches here that during the tribulation period, there will be a temple. Okay, a temple must be rebuilt for uh, this prophecy to come true. Now, there are many people that believe and have believed for years and years and years that it would be impossible to rebuild the temple unless the Dome of the Rock is torn down. So, so we've got to tear down these Muslim uh, structures so that the temple can be rebuilt. And you know what? You know about the Muslims and the Jews and their fighting. That's been going on for 6,000 years. They're not going to let you tear those structures down, okay? But something interesting happened because a few years ago, a Jewish engineer by the name of Asher Kaufman. David, you'll probably want to research him, I'm sure, after tonight. Asher Kaufman began to do extensive research uh, and has proven, I think, rightly, that the former temple was located to the north of the Dome of the Rock, and that the temple, the temple area, the, 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 the temple area where especially the holy place, the most holy place is, and even a part of the outer court can be rebuilt without disturbing any of the Muslim structures that are there. Okay? Now, you say, well, then how is that going to happen? I think it's going to happen when Antichrist makes a treaty with the Jewish people. Just as the Jewish people made a treaty with, with, the, with the Muslims after the Six-Day War and allowed them to um, continue to 
uh, have control of the Temple Mount, I believe in the last days that when Antichrist makes a treaty with the Jews, part of the concession that they're going to make is we're going to allow you to rebuild your temple. Now, look, here's the deal, y'all. They don't know why they're doing that, but we know why they're doing that. Because after three and a half years, Antichrist is going to go in. He's going to set himself up as God to be worshipped in that temple. There's got to be a temple. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't look for it to be built if I were you, if I was a believer, because I just don't think we're going to be here when it's rebuilt. I, think, I personally believe it's going to be rebuilt during that three and a half year period. I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but I do believe because of the treaty, part of the treaty will be will allow you to build your temple. The temple will be rebuilt. Sacrifices will begin to be made again. And so um, there's going to be this this um, temple that's going to be rebuilt. Now look at it again. How can that happen in, in Revelation when the temple's there? Well, when he says to them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go measure that part of it. And this part over here, that where the Dome of the Rock is and where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is, don't, don't, don't measure them. I've given that one to the Gentiles. I've given that one to the nations to trample underfoot for three and a half years. You can't touch that one. Okay, y'all with me? Starts making sense, doesn't it? Now, um, so we've got through all that. Now, here's what's interesting. For so many years, nobody really cared. Now, Lee and I were there how many years ago? 20? Two decades? Over the last three decades or so, the Jews have started becoming interested in the Temple Mount area again and temple worship. Um, so interested that they are making preparations right now, today, to reinstitute temple worship. They are training priests, they are breeding the sacrificial animals, they are making the garments, they have found God preserved, I'm sure, and I don't remember where. Um, can't keep all that stuff in my head. <laughs> but they have found some of the original anointing oil. And, and they have, because chemistry and, and technology is so good now, they've been able to break that down to its original ingredients. They are making the anointing oil now. Uh, the utensils. As a matter of fact, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, today, if Jesus Christ came and took his church, the Antichrist stepped on the scene tomorrow and made a treaty with the Jews before the week was over, there would be preparations or maybe already breaking ground to build a new temple. Because I'm going to tell you what, they've already got the pattern because God gave it to Moses. Okay? Interesting. Just some good stuff. So that's just verse 1 and 2, okay? So, so, so that's how there's going to be a temple in, in, in the tribulation period. Now, the two witnesses. Uh, look at, first of all, I want you to see the duration of their ministry. Three and a half years, okay? Now, if it's, at the, if it's the last half of the tribulation, then... Um, 
it kind of gets everything out of whack when you get to verse 14 where it says, The second woe is past, behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So, so it, it, it ends, as it ends, something else begins, and we'll look at the bold judgments, the seven bold judgments, which are a whole lot worse than what we've seen in the seals and in the trumpets, okay? And by the way, in the midst of all this, the seventh trumpet doesn't sound until this 14th verse is over with. So somewhere, somewhere in the midst of that first three-and-a-half-year period, this temple is going to be rebuilt. These two witnesses are going to come on the scene. I was reading uh, a, a guy this week, and I thought it was kind of interesting. He was talking about the two witnesses. I, I don't think there's any way to prove it. But, but he, he even mentioned that the two witnesses will be responsible for all of the chaos of the trumpet judgments. Now, I guess it's a good thought, something good to think about. Don't say that, so don't read too much into that, okay? Now, the duration, three and a half years. So for three and a half years, they're going to be preaching, okay? Preaching. And he said, because he says, and they will prophesy, and it's really the word to proclaim. It's the Greek word to proclaim, to, to speak forth. Uh, what they will be doing is they will be preaching this everlasting gospel. Uh, now, 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 here, now, here's the thing. Here's why everybody will get so tore up about it, okay? Um, Angie Bishop and I have this little word that we use uh, sometimes when we're talking. Both of us understand it. Uh, people get sideways. <laughs> Y'all ever heard of people getting sideways? And, and so we'll talk about people getting. People get sideways because there is this deception that that the devil is trying to um, put on all these people who are living on the earth, and these two witnesses are disproving it day after day after day. They are telling the truth, and it's getting people sideways. I'm going to tell you what. When we tell the truth, people get sideways, don't they? I was reading today a book, uh, a part of a book, and not, not the whole thing, part of a book by, from a guy by the name of Ron Rhodes. If, if you like Bible prophecy, read Ron Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, really good, got some really good stuff. Uh, Ron Rhodes has got a, got, a, got a book on the apostasy, and he talks about how America has uh, believed these lies that are being told, uh, how, we, how, how, how we, you know, we hear something, and then because of political correctness or we don't want to be labeled or whatever we just kind of go along we don't say anything we're kind of duped into believing something that's not the truth that when people do tell the truth there is this just total uh, attack against us just just for just for speaking truth i'm talking about biblical truth okay biblical truth and and he listed out some things i don't have time to go into all that but I, it, it was pretty pretty compelling it, it, you, you, we see it every day. So, so these men come along, and they preach. They're telling the truth. Now, who are they? Who are they? Well, uh, I'm going to give you um, three possibilities, okay? And I see everybody grinning because if you've ever studied this before, I, can't, I just can't be exact on who I think that they are. You say, well, Gary, who do you think that they are? And I think they're Moses and Elijah, but, and I'll tell you why. But it could be Enoch, too, you know. 
Or it could be just two others that God just brings on the scene. Doesn't, doesn't really say. But I think there are some, some clues here, at least of what they're able to do. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, if you want to just make a notation, we won't go over there right now. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, I will send my prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay? And so God, even in the book of Malachi, through the Holy Spirit, says, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So you know what? Okay, Elijah. Um, uh, so so give me, give me, you know, let, me, let me give you another reason why. Look at verse 6. These have the power to shut up the sky. Didn't Elijah pray and it didn't rain? So what, whoever this character is, if he is Elijah, that's great. If he's not, he's going to have the same characteristics and qualities and, and, and abilities that Elijah had. Okay? Now, and by the way, he was one of the ones that was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, now think about this with me for a minute. <laughs> How did the disciples know that's who that was? I don't know. I've often thought about that. I thought that they saw Moses and Elijah. Okay. Um, did Jesus tell them? Maybe. Did they recognize who it was? Did the Holy Spirit illuminate them? Possibly. But they knew it was Moses and Elijah. And, and what was the purpose of that? The purpose of that was foreshadowing the second coming of the Lord. Okay. So, so you have Elijah there. Um, and you have Moses there at the Mount of Transfiguration. In verse 6 as well, one of the prophets, one of these witnesses, um, they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. That's Moses. We know that's Moses. So why Moses and Elijah? Well, probably the two, the two greatest prophets of all that, that, you know, if you were to point out in the, in the Old Testament, probably the two best known, the two greatest but what about this? It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Did Elijah die? No. Did Enoch die? No. Did Moses die? Yes. It was mysterious, but the Bible did say, and God buried him, okay? So people would say, well, maybe it's Enoch and Elijah because one is a Jew and one is a Gentile, so they represent uh, Jews and Gentiles, uh, and neither of them died. But you can't just go by that because that's not that does that hasn't set a precedence in the rest of Scripture. There are nine other people in the Bible who were dead and who brought back to life. Um, Lazarus was one of them. Lazarus died twice, so you can't be so dogmatic about this idea that, well, it's got to be those two because Enoch didn't die. Well, um, you know, it's the point on man wants to die. If you use that one, then I can go through and show you all the way through uh, some of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament that did die and they were raised back from the dead. Or it could be two entirely different men. We don't know. The fact of the matter is there's going to be two witnesses. And they are going to wreak havoc on people in the earth, on the earth. They're going to call down fire. They're going to turn, turn water to blood. They're going to keep it from raining. 
look at their mission. Their mission is to preach. Preach for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is a, a sign of mourning. Here, these men are not going to be coming preaching a message that is going to thrill them for having to preach it. I'm going to tell you what, Paul, you've been there. Tony, you've been there. David, I'm sure you've been there. Uh, Bill taught some Sunday school classes. We have taught some things that didn't bring us a lot of joy. But when you preach the truth, that's just what you have to do. And these guys, they don't, they're not bringing a message of joy. They're bringing a message of doom and judgment. So their mission, their mission is to, to preach. And while they're preaching, when Jesus came and when the apostles were first on the scene, what did God use to authenticate their message? Signs and wonders and miracles. So, so whoever these two are, we know that they are authenticated as being from God because of their signs and their wonders and their miracles. So, so yeah, these men are sent from God. And I'll show you something here in just a minute. Look at their protection, verse 5. Now, now, now how would you like to do this? Somebody gets sideways with you, and you just go, they go up and puff a smoke. Think about that for a minute. I, you know, I, I suspect that once that happens a time or two and people see it, I don't imagine there's a whole lot of people that approach them after that. They probably stood afar off. I, I mean, think is that literal? Absolutely it is. They have power to shut up the sky. They have power, authority to prophesy they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, I'm just going to make a notation here for you. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Zechariah 4, 1 through 14. It's a, it's a prophecy about uh, Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the leader. But the fact of the matter is, is the question is asked, who, who is this? And, and the, the quotation here is exactly from Zechariah chapter 4. The two olive trees and the two lampstands, okay? So the olive trees are the olive oil and the Bible is symbolical of the Holy Spirit, and the two and the lampstands are symbolical of the light. You know, there's this. The lampstands are the Manoah, that that light, that seven branch light that that's in that most holy place that just lights up everything. So, so what you have here is two men. Here's another indication: their signs and their wonders. And number two, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit because they are the only light during the world at this time, other than other than the believers, okay? So we, we could, I mean, there's a whole message on that, but just, you know, re read that and study that a little bit. It's, it's pretty interesting. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed. Just turn the tables on. Now look at this. Their death. Their death, verses 7 through 10. When they have finished their testimony. Now let me tell you all something. If you know what the will of God is and you're doing the will of God. You are as safe as a baby in a crib. Until what God has called you to do is finished. You are safer in the will of God. In the middle of downtown Baghdad than you are in Rome, Georgia, being out of the will of God. If you're in the will of God or out of the will of God. You're safer in the will. These guys are safe until, okay, until. When they have finished their testimony, 
The beast that comes up out of the abyss, that's, that's Satan, okay? That's Satan. Don't get him confused with the Antichrist. That's Satan. We saw it, I think it was in chapter 6. He will make war with them, and he will overcome them and kill them. Um, now, look what happens. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which is called mystically Sodom and Egypt. So what does that mean, Gary? Well, Jerusalem during that day will be like Egypt when it comes to their persecution of believers, and they will be like, like Sodom in the vileness of their sin during that day. Okay? Like Egypt and like Sodom. Egypt and the, the, the vanity and the persecution and Sodom in their vileness and their depth of immorality. Now, here these two men are that have been tormenting these people day and night for three and a half years just by telling them the truth. They have brought the plagues. They have caused it not to rain. And then those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. CNN. Fox News, ABC, I don't know. Uh, but I will say this. This is the first time in history that we can sit up here and go, that's possible. When, when John wrote this, it was not possible. Unless he was just talking about symbolical of the people who were in that area that saw it. But, but look, I, I, he, he, goes, he goes to great length to say the people, every, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. And they will permit their bodies to be laid in the tomb. Um, they, they won't bury them. There, there is this. You, do, you remember, do you remember when Saul and Jonathan got killed? What the men of the city did with their bodies? They hung them up. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't bury them. You remember some men came and they stole those bodies and, and they buried them. It's a, it, it's a sign of, of hate and contempt when you just let a body just lay out there. I mean, nobody would do that. We don't even, you know, I, I know people that will stop on the side of the road and pick up a dead animal and bury it. But they're going to be able and they're going to be, they, they, they permit them to lie in the streets for three and a half days. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Let me give you a loose translation, or I think what a very good explanation of what's happened here. Bible preaching had bugged them. They were bugged by the Bible preaching. And so you know what? They just showed contempt for them. They threw a party. They sent gifts. They called a new holiday and celebrated because these men were dead. All over the world, there's this great celebration because these two men who tormented them day and night for three and a half years are now dead. 
The beast has won. So it seems. But look at this. I call this God's vindication. Look at verse 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, now remember they're watching this. Watching it on CNN, watching it on cable news, watching it on national news, watching it on international news, seeing it on the internet. I, I suspect that there will be people that will sit up at night and watch, celebrate. They're throwing this big party. They're having a good time. And all of a sudden, folks, the singing stops. But after, but there's one of those great injunctions in the Bible, okay? But after the three and a half days, and I'll just translate this way. God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. And they stood on their feet. And this is an understatement. And great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Right? Mark this down, ladies and gentlemen. You can't defeat a God who has the power of resurrection. Who can oppose a God of resurrection power? Not even death can hinder, hinder God's program. Look at what he does. He, he raises them to their feet. He calls out to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. I wonder if it was the same cloud that came and ushered Jesus back into heaven after his resurrection. I think it probably was. And their enemies watched them. Now look at the reaction and the consequences. And then that hour, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Now look at this. This is, this, is, this is the most interesting statement of all. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now listen, let me tell you, that doesn't mean they worship God of heaven. That just means they looked at each other and said, did you see what God just did? God did that. But what's missing? They did not repent of their iniquities. Do you remember there was a time when the statement was made? Do you remember? You remember, was it, was it Lazarus and the rich man that went to hell? And I've got these brothers, go preach to them. But, but a statement was made one time, said, even if somebody comes back from the dead, they won't believe. The hardness of man's heart is so hard that even a resurrection in itself will not. Now, look, we all, we all hear stories, don't we, about the resurrection of people? But, but, but how has that changed us? How has that changed some people? They gave glory to God. God did that. But it does not say they repented of their sins. You know what? We can pray for all kinds of miracles. We can pray to see all kinds of miracles because we won't see a lot of people say. But the fact of the matter is... Man's heart is so hard that sometimes even a miracle won't penetrate that hard heart. They have just said no, 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 no for so long. There will also be in heaven, 
those in hell glorifying God. But I'm sure there will be some blame because most people believe that he will put them there. God doesn't send anybody to hell. Everybody who is in hell today and will be in eternity and for all eternity um, are there because of a choice. And it's just not believing. How, how insane is it for us to have a cure for our sin problem? And reject that cure and constantly look for another way that seems more palatable to us. I got to do something. I got don't. I got to do something. No, you have to do anything. Believe. They didn't glorify God. It does not say that they repented of their sins. Now, but watch this. How bad has it been up till this point? It's been pretty bad. You know, almost half the world population gone. Waters are better. No oceanic travel. No getting food from one place to another. Food shortages, water shortages. This ought to scare the living daylights out of somebody who's not saved. The second woe is past. Behold, there's that word. It's a, it's a word of awe. It's a word like man. The third war is coming quickly. Gary, translate that. It's bad. About to get worse. 